0: turn to John chapter 13. This morning we begin a a brief little series through some of the one another's in scripture. That may not be a phrase that's terribly familiar to you. Um, If you had one of these booklets, you could turn to the last page and it might make a little more sense. On the back here, this is not exhaustive in any way, but I believe it's 37 different one another's found throughout Scripture. The one another's are things like love one another, be devoted to one another, prefer one another. Even things like don't sue one another are on this list. Uh, Different ways that we are called to interact with one another as followers of Christ. Uh, We're going to be going through this this series um, just for four weeks. I'm going to preach this Sunday on Love One Another. Paul's going to take a couple over the next two weeks, and then we'll all end um, at the end of October. But in addition to that, you have this booklet. and We'll be going through the majority of the one-anothers that are listed on the back there. If you looked at week one, there's there's five different one-another passages. Um, that OA there stands for, that's where the one another's at. The one-another in this case is in verse 11. Um, this is that uh, light bulb question mark arrow that we've been talking about a little bit Uh, If you don't know what that means, you'll need to read that, that short article that I sent you a link to, or else there's a little brief description in the front here. It's just a method of Bible study where we would read a passage of Scripture, see a light bulb, something that shines from the text, see a question mark, something that maybe we don't understand, or a question we would want to ask the author, and then an arrow, which is just a personal application from that passage. It's a very simple way to walk through a passage of Scripture. It can take you five minutes. It could take you 50 minutes. It could take you as long as... You like to study these passages of Scripture. But I pray that as we go through these, it will supplement well what we're teaching on Sunday mornings. And not only that, but we're adding a twist for the first week of this series. You're going to do it by yourself. For the second week, you're going to find someone in your house to do at least one of these studies with. So it may be your husband or your wife or one of your children. You will sit down, read the passage out loud together. You'll each share your light bulb. You'll each share your question mark. You'll each share your arrow and talk through the Scriptures together this is again trying to apply some of that trellis and the vine thing that we've been talking about this is a very practical simple way to do it And then for the last two weeks we're giving you two weeks two full weeks to find one other person who does not live in your home who possibly goes to this church or or it could be someone else who is a believer you or even not a believer that you would sit down with and read the passage of scripture with talk through a, a, a light bulb talk through a question mark and talk through an arrow So that's all kind of explained at the front there. And again, this is to get us actually practicing the one another. It makes sense, doesn't it, to read a passage about encouraging one another with someone else. And then when you get to the arrow, you know what you can do? You can encourage one another and actually practice the application right there. So this is not some sort of a gimmick or anything. This is just a simple tool to help us put some of these things into practice. Hopefully that makes sense. I would say, do you have any questions? And we could raise hands, but we're Sunday morning. Maybe that isn't appropriate. But if you do have any questions about what this looks like, you can talk to me. You can read that article. Uh, it was fun. We did this with the youth on uh, Friday night, walked through uh, a couple passages of Scripture applying this Bible study method. Very simple. It, like I said, it can take as long or as short as you want. But hopefully this will supplement well and help us to think through how we can love one another as as a church, so hopefully you're in John chapter 13. And before we begin this morning, let me pray for us. Lord God, we come to this passage of Scripture, and it is so rich. There's so many good things in these chapters and in these verses. So I pray that you would teach us. You'd help us to see the truth here. That it would shine forth from the text. That you would answer our questions and then you would help us to apply it. And we know that we can understand this in some ways in our head, but we pray that you would let it sink down into our hearts and change us. pray that you would be with my words as I teach these things and preach through this passage. And I would say things that are pleasing to you and good for your church. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. John 13 through 16 is often called the Upper Room Discourse. It's kind of falsely named because about at the end of 14, Jesus says, let's go on from this place, and they're no longer in the Upper Room. But John 13 through 16 is often called the Upper Room Discourse, followed by John 17, which is called Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. It's an entire chapter of Jesus praying. What a beautiful thing that we have here in the Bible, to hear how Jesus prayed. These are familiar chapters to many of us. There's some of our favorite portions of Scripture are in here. Uh, they're familiar to me, and yet, as I read them this past week, I was struck by how I, I know these words. It's so hard to get to the depths of what is, what is Jesus really saying here. There's so much to it, and there's so much that I understand, and there's so much that I yet struggle to understand fully. What is he saying This is essentially Jesus' last sermon, which would give it special significance. Last words are given special significance, and this is Jesus' last sermon. And as we heard when Paul read at the beginning of chapter 13, I'm always struck by those verses because it makes it clear that Jesus knew exactly what was going on. His death did not take him at all by surprise, and he affirms this throughout all these passages of Scripture, through his trial and through Um, his death on the cross, he knows what's going on. And it's correct to say that Jesus was killed on the cross, but it is also correct to say that Jesus laid down his life on the cross. He was in full control throughout the whole time. And as you read John 13, it just strikes me as he keeps saying, I know what's going on. I am fully aware of what is happening right now. I know that I'm going to be betrayed. I know that I'm going to be handed over. I know that I'm going to die. And Jesus is laying down his life. And so as these words come, they come from a man who knows what's going to happen in a few hours. And in this section, he does one of the most caring and loving things that he can do. He sits down with his disciples and he encourages them. He says things like, I'm, I'm leaving soon and you can't come with me. What would that have been like for the disciples to hear? you think that would pierce their hearts. I mean, for the past three years, they've hardly spent a day probably without Jesus. And now he says that he's leaving them. And they can't follow him anymore. He's not going to be with them anymore. They would have probably said, we want to know how to follow you. Tell us where you're going. Are you serious? He tells them, he says, I'm returning to the Father. I'm going there to prepare a place for you And one day soon, you will come and and you will be with me. And Thomas, in chapter 14, he's totally distraught at that thought. And he says, Jesus, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know how to get there? Jesus says what? Those famous words of John 14, 6. Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus assures his friends throughout this as they're They're thinking about him leaving. He says, I'm leaving, but this is, this is good. Because when I leave, I will send the Comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he will come, and he will be with you always. And it's actually better for me to leave so that the Spirit can come. If I'm one of the disciples, though, I'm thinking, "I, I know you say that, but I would rather you just stay here, Jesus. I know the Spirit is going to be good, but I'd like for you to just be here with us. And in the midst of all of these things that he's encouraging, them with we find two really beautiful passages two more encouragements to the disciples in the midst of all this confusion and and grief and jesus is encouraging them and in john 13 verses 31 through 35 we find this first one let's read this together john chapter 13 31 through 35 it says therefore when he had gone out jesus said now is the son of man i should explain that i'm sorry When he had gone out, that is speaking of Judas. This is when Judas had left to betray Jesus. So to to betray Jesus. Immediately after that happened, he says, "Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and will glorify Him immediately." Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Just a chapter and a half over It seems like Jesus is saying something very similar again. Look at John 15. Let's read verses 12 through 17 of John 15. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. So here we find this repeated phrase. Love one another. It's as if before Jesus leaves, he says, I'm not going to be here anymore, so stop looking at me. And I want you to look at one another. This morning, let's just consider this command a little bit further. It is a command to love one another. And as we consider it, I want to, I think it's wise to see this command, this command to love one another, actually as the source of of all of the other one another passages that we're going to look at. To encourage one another, um, to admonish one another, to rebuke one another, to not sue one another. These are all extensions of loving one another. If we love one another, then we will do the other ones. It is the fountain, it's the spring from which all the other one another's are going to flow from. So as we think about this command, I want us to consider, first of all, he talks about the newness of the command. Jesus says this in chapter 13, it's at, uh, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you. Now, we know that this command is, is not new in the sense that it has never been spoken before. The newness of the command is not that we are to love one another, but how we are to love one another. This is something that you have probably learned before as you've looked at this passage. But look what he says. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And then this phrase, Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. It says it in John chapter 15, verse 12 as well. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. So what's the newness of the command? It's not that we should love one another. It's how we are to love one another. And he says, you're to love one another in the way that I have loved you. How had Jesus loved his disciples? I think immediately we think about what just happened in John 13. The way that Jesus loves, Jesus is loving like Jesus is marked, first of all, by humble service. It's marked by humble service. Can you imagine if Jesus came into this room and he came up here and, and he preached and he preached, say, the Sermon on the Mount, and then he said, okay, now I would like to wash everyone's feet. But what is What was that like for the disciples, to know who Jesus was? I think that when Peter protested, when Peter said, no, Lord, you can't wash my feet, I wonder if it's because he was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He had seen something unique about who Jesus was. He understood that this was the Son of God. He said, this is not, you can't do this, Jesus. You cannot wash my feet. Jesus had, had come into this, this upper room, and he had done the thing that no one else wanted to do. If you think about when someone comes over to your house, there's certain things that you just take care of. You wouldn't ask someone when they come to your house to say, you know, we we, we got the food ready, but we forgot to clean the bathroom. Could you go do that, please? If you come to my house, I'm not going to ask you to change Noel's diaper. These are things... That, that I would not ask you to do. It's, it's not anything that anyone else wants to do. It's things that I'm responsible to take care of. That's what foot washing was like. And it, it's not that, that Jesus was was forced to wash the disciples' feet, but we could say that he chose to wash the disciples' feet because no one else was willing to. He chose to take the basin and the towel and to wash everyone's feet. He knew what he was doing but he chose to humble himself. He chose to say, what you have been unwilling to do up till now, I'm calling you to do. He says, I've shown you what this is like. I've shown you humble service now, and now I want you to love one another like this, with humility, in a way that serves one another. As I read this, I thought, I wonder if that was strange to the disciples. How close were the disciples? They were gathered around Jesus. They all loved Jesus, but we see some kind of infighting going on amongst the disciples on on friday night with the youth we were looking at at some passages and we were recalling how the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest remember when james and john come and they say jesus we want to sit on your right hand and on your left and then all the disciples were mad because james and john had done that and you just wonder what's what's going to happen when jesus leaves i mean who's going to say guys stop arguing about who's the greatest once jesus is gone is there going to be division amongst the disciples? They were a unique group, and there were probably some that that butted heads a little bit when you look at their personalities. And now Jesus is saying, "I'm leaving, and it's just you guys, and I want you to love one another." Maybe that meant something more significant than we might think. We might think when Jesus says, "Love one another," to the to the disciples, we would say, "Well, yeah, they're already doing that." But maybe they, maybe they weren't, fully. Maybe there was some rivalry that was going on. And yet we see the miracle of what happens later in the book of Acts, where they're all gathered together in the upper room. They are together after having seen the resurrection of Jesus and being filled with new courage. Their love for Jesus has spilled over. and Now it is a love for one another, a love that has caused them to humbly serve one another. Of course, Jesus goes beyond foot washing. He goes beyond humble service all the way to sacrificial service. The newness of the command is to love like Jesus, and we love like Jesus when we are committed to humble service, and not just humble service, but sacrificial service. That comes out in the the section of John 15 where he gives the command. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends you do what I command you. Jesus is looking forward to what is going to happen very soon, and he says, the way that you love one another is by laying down your life for one another. I've shown you what humble service looks like in washing your feet. And very soon you're going to see what sacrificial service looks like when I lay down my life for you. Jesus' love for his disciples is is clear throughout the Gospels, but it's so clear in the end that scene where Judas comes and and even his love for Judas in that moment where Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss and Jesus makes sure that the disciples are protected. He keeps Peter from doing anything more foolish than he had already done. He loves his disciples and he says, listen, if you're looking for me, you have me. So let these ones go. He sends himself forward and says, Don't Don't harm my disciples. You're looking for me. Jesus loved his disciples. In Jesus' death, it was a sacrifice. Just as a lamb would have been offered on the altar in place of the one who had sinned, Jesus came. He came to be a sacrifice. And the cross... It's the center of our faith and it's the center of how we understand what it looks like to love one another. It's the most full description and depiction of what it looks like for God to love us. That He has come not to serve, I mean, not to be served, but to serve and to want to give His life as a ransom for many. So as we as we come and we see the cross, we see this is what sacrificial service looks like. It looks like coming to those who you love and to those who will betray you and to those who may not love you at all and laying down your life in sacrifice for them. And for those of us who have come to Christ by faith, we've been washed in his blood, we've been made holy by our belief in his death and resurrection, Jesus now calls us To love one another as he has loved us. It starts showing up in, in places like Ephesians 5. Where Paul says. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you. And gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God. As a fragrant aroma. Paul understood what Jesus meant. And later on when he talks about husbands. He says husbands love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself up when we want to understand what love is, Paul goes back to the cross and he says, if you want to walk in love, if you, if you husbands want to love your wife, the way you do it is by laying down your life, is by following Jesus' example. So this sacrificial love, I, I could give you a myriad of explanations and applications for what that looks like, but I think as we go through this series, as you read through these different passages, it is the one another. To lay down your life sacrificially and humbly is to practice the one another's towards each other. It's to love one another in these ways. To put the needs of other people above your own and to lay down your life for the sake of the people that Jesus has laid down his life for. So the newness of the command is not just the command to love one another, but how we're to love one another. We're to love like Jesus has loved us in humble service and in sacrificial service. But who are we supposed to love in this way, what's we looked at the newness of the commandment. Let's look at the extent of the commandment. Um, look again at, at chapter thirteen, verses thirty-one through thirty-five, and he says, verse thirty-four: Do commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And fifteen: This is my commandment that you love one another. Verse seventeen: This is I. This I command you, that you love one another. Who, who is one another? Who is he talking to? I think most specifically, he's he's talking to the disciples. It's directed to the community of believers. It's the, the disciples are called to love one another. They're called to love each other as fellow followers of Christ. We are called to love our family of believers. So when Jesus says, love one another, he means this group at the core at the very core he means your your family i'm to love my wife and i'm to love my children the way that christ has loved me and then beyond that my my blood relatives it goes to this family who are my relatives by the blood of christ and we are to love one another it's a unique love it's a specific love to the body of believers to those who are followers of jesus he says You need to love one another. Does that mean that we don't love anyone else? Of course not. Jesus makes it clear in things like the parable of, of, of the Good Samaritan, that who is my neighbor? My neighbor is the person that's in need who's in front of me, and I'm to love them in a sacrificial way if I can. And so this is not... What Jesus is doing here is he's doing something very specific. He's saying you need to love one another. So what's the extent of the command? The extent goes to the community of believers. Yes, we are to love all people because they are all created in God's image, but here he's specifically saying you need to love one another. There needs to be a uniqueness about the love that you guys have as followers of me. Now, this has kind of bothered me a little bit when you think about it. Doesn't that seem a little harsh for Jesus to speak that way? Why doesn't he say love everyone? Let's think about that. we have talked about the newness and the extent. I want to talk about the effect of the commandment for the rest of the time that we're in this. What's the effect? The effect is encouragement. So we've we've talked about the disciples. What's going on here? Jesus is leaving, and the disciples are distressed about that. And so as part of his encouragement, what's one thing that he says? He says, love one another. I'm leaving, so you need to love one another. In the midst of Jesus' departure, this is an encouragement that he gives them, because he's leaving, and where is he leaving them? He's leaving them in the world. He says this after the one another in John 15. John 15, 17, this I command you, that you love one another. Then look at verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So what's the world's response going to be to the disciples? The world will hate you because the world has hated me. And if you follow me, then the world is going to hate you as well. And so Jesus says, I'm leaving you here in a place where everyone is going to hate you. Therefore, you need to love one another. Because if you don't love one another, then your lives are just going to be filled with hate. Because everyone outside, if you're saying you're a follower of me, they hated me. They're going to hate you too. So we need this body of believers. He said, you guys need each other because persecution, hard times are coming. This was true for the disciples, wasn't it? I mean, think about the book of Acts. How do you survive through things like the book of Acts, through persecution and imprisonment and martyrdom and, and just people trying to wipe you out as, a, as, a, as followers of Jesus? How do you survive that if there is not a group of people that say, hey, we love one another, we're in this together? How do you rejoice at persecution if there's not people that are there with you, encouraging you, exhorting you? Follower of Jesus Christ, in this room, the world will hate you. If they hated Jesus, then they will hate us. We shouldn't go walk out into the world and expect them to just love everything that we say. Jesus says we should exact actually expect the exact opposite. And so the love that we have for one another Jesus says this is an encouragement. You need to love one another because if you don't love one another, this world is a hostile place against the truth of the gospel. You need one another. So this isn't a clubhouse mentality. My girls are getting older and they've kind of moved into some of this no boys allowed thing, which means me. Because I'm the only boy in their house. You can imagine those clubhouses where it says, no boys allowed, no girls allowed. We don't want to put a sign up outside that says, no non-Christians allowed. <laughs> we will not love you if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. But he is saying there is a uniqueness to the love that we need to have for one another that that holds us up that encourages us in the midst of the world that is trying to beat us down. And you know what's unique about that is that instead of having a sign that says, no non-Christians allowed, we will not love you if you're not a follower of Jesus, what happens is as we love one another, it becomes the sign that says, come here and see what true love looks like. So the the effect of of the commandment is, first of all, encouragement. But the second effect that Jesus tells us is evangelism. Watch these turns of phrase in in this passage. John 13, verse 35. Let's, Let's just read it all again. I know it's redundant, but maybe we'll have it all memorized by the time the morning's over, right? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by what? By the love that you have for one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We could reverse that that sentence and say, if you have love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. Now, look at, at John 17, where Jesus is praying. John 17, verse, verses 20 and 21 say this. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He's praying that, that they, they would be sanctified. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, verse 21 of chapter 17, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The love that we have for one another, first of all, Jesus says in in chapter 13, he says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples. And then in chapter 17, he says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. One, one of the um, books that I read when I was at Moody, it was, it was really shaped my thinking. And it was probably the smallest book that I read. It's this little almost pamphlet by Francis Schaeffer called The Mark of a Christian. And in that, his, his basic argument is from these, these passages, these love one another passages. And what he says is, he says, if we don't love one another, then what Jesus says is that the world has every right to say that Jesus did not come in the flesh. That the gospel is not true. He says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. If we are not unified, if we do not love one another, then he says, then the world has every right to say that Jesus didn't come. That's kind of the effect of these passages. Because this, this love is, it's, it's attractive. It's something that people want. People desire to be loved. They desire to be in a community. I ended up at a Waffle House this week. Does anyone go to Waffle House? We were getting our van looked at, and there was one nearby, and ended up riding my bike over there, and I sat for a, a few hours hoping that they would be done with our van by the time I was done, but they weren't, and so I rode my bike a little bit further on. But, while I was there, I've only been to Waffle House twice in my life. And it's 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 a unique place. I mean, it's kind of small. Um, when you come, it's not like there's anyone greeting you at the door and seating you at your table. You go and you find a place to sit. And the food is, is okay. It's fine. It's, it's nothing that I couldn't make at home, to be totally honest. But it's nice to have someone else make it for you. Um, it's not you know, known for being the cleanest place in the world, but it's it's fine, and the plates aren't real fancy. They kind of reminded me of my grandmother's old plates, which was nostalgic, but it, it, it also means they weren't that special necessarily. But both times that I've been to Waffle House, it's it's unique. It's a very unique place. And I told Andrew, and I think I'm being conservative when I say this, but I would say that 50% of the people that walk through the door at Waffle House, that the waitresses know who they are. As if you guys experience this, they call them by name. Hey, Joe, why don't you come over here and sit down? Do you want a cup of coffee? Do you want your usual? Uh, you know, they, they know these people. They sit and they talk to, them, and when they leave, they say, "We'll see you tomorrow," and and they mean it. We will see you tomorrow. Or, hey, we've missed seeing you around here. You haven't been around here lately. There's this community at Waffle House. Now, when I worked at Starbucks, it, it happened the same way. There were people that came in. I, I knew Ophelia would be there. I knew Gabriel would always come in, and you'd get two shots of espresso, and we'd sit and talk to them. And Dave would always come in, and we knew them. First of all, you you would know someone by their drink. Oh, that's two raw sugar latte guy. And then suddenly you got to know their name, and you knew it was Dave, and you started to talk to them more. And there was this community. and And I've seen this at multiple Starbucks because I like to go there and sit and read, but there's always the morning crew, and they're always there together. It's these men from the community. And they sit around in this circle, and they they don't know any, each other for any other reason except that they go to Starbucks in the morning. And slowly over time, they started conversations, and now it's become this group. And they get together, and they talk about the news, and they laugh. And I've seen people come together, and they'll have a Christmas party at Starbucks. There's a Starbucks crew that's there. They're part of this community. Why? Why does this stuff happen? Because people want to be loved. They want to be cared for. Communities pop up all over the place around different things. People that we think don't want love for one another get into groups, like bikers. There's no group that loves one another more than bikers. Those guys will lay down their life for one another. I've, I've met some of these guys, and they love their group of people. People that do charity, bikers do more charities than churches do, I think, sometimes. <laughs> they do rides for people. But people want to be a part of a community of love, and there is a, an attractiveness to that. What Jesus is saying is, the love that you have for one another, people will know that there's something unique about you. And we should have something up on the, these other communities. We should have something up on Waffle House, you know? Our love for one another should be stronger than the love that the waitresses have for the regular customers. But we should have something on Starbucks as far as when people come in and we know who they are. It should be a love that people come in and they, they sense and they know and they see and they say, Wow, this is unique. This is a, a strange place. I actually really think that these people love one another. I've never seen that before. It's, it's so strange. And then when we start to tell them the truth about the gospel, they say, Yeah, I think that's true because of what I've seen. Now, our love for one another is not the gospel. We still need to teach the truth that Jesus has come and died on the cross for sins, that the only way to heaven is to repent and to believe in him alone for salvation. We have to teach that. But when people see and hear that, they say, I believe that's true because this place is so unique, because of the love that you have for one another. I am the furthest thing from someone who would say that our services on Sunday mornings need to be attractional. That our music needs to be something that draws people in. That the aesthetics of this place need to be something that that make people come. That the sermon series that we do need to be something that says, you know, I'm going to teach on this because that's what people want to hear and so they will come to our church. I'm, I'm very far from that. I do not believe that's what the New Testament teaches the church should be. But we should be attractional. We should be attractive to the watching world. That when they come in here, they say, you know, it doesn't matter to me what the music is like. It doesn't matter to me that they're in the basement of another church. It doesn't matter to me any of these other things because I see the love that they have for one another this gospel thing must be real. That's the effect of this. If we would love one another, not only do we encourage one another and build one another up in a world that is fighting against the gospel, but when we love one another, we actually proclaim the gospel to the world. We send it out. And when people come, they say, "Yep, yeah, it's true. I believe that Jesus has come in the flesh. I believe in the truth that Jesus has come to die for my sins. Because they see it alive and well in the church. So we see the the newness of the command is rooted in loving like Jesus loves. Humble service, sacrificial service. The extent specifically is to us as believers, though we are called to love all people. And the effect of it is that it encourages us as believers. And it shows the world the truth of the gospel. It says, yes, this is real. Jesus can change you. Jesus will forgive your sins. And just in closing, I want to share this this thought that hit home to me. The reality that our love for one another will be a reflection of our understanding of God's love for us. Our love for one another will be a reflection of our understanding of God's love for us. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. What do you think about how Jesus has loved you? Do do you sing songs like this and say, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best? Do we really believe that Jesus loves us? Jesus loves me, this I know, or the Bible tells me so. Does that sink down into my heart? If I believe that, then when Jesus says, "Love others as I have loved you," I would say, well, "I don't know if I can love anyone that much, but I'm going to try to do it as best I can." But if you've never experienced the love of God, if you don't know the love of God, then this command is is pretty empty. It won't make a whole lot of sense to say, "Love as Jesus has loved," and you say, "Well, I'm not sure how much Jesus really loves me." So in some ways, that's why we have sung the songs that we have sung. To say, I understand the love of God, seen fully in the cross. And when we understand that, then we will love each other in a unique and special way. And that prayer of Paul, where he says, I pray that they would comprehend, that they would understand, that they would know the love of God, which surpasses understanding. What a great prayer. That they would know the love of God, even though they will never fully know it. And if we could know that love, and then say, this is the love of God for me, this is the love that I've seen in the cross, and Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you. You say, I don't know if I could ever do that, but I'm going to do my best to humbly and sacrificially love my brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage them, and for the sake of the gospel and its spread in the world. Then we are doing what Christ has called us to do. We are furthering His kingdom and glorifying Him as a church. Let's pray together before we respond in another song thinking on the love of God.